Good evening and welcome to our evening service. Good to have you folks here tonight. And I know there's some on Zoom. I don't see you, but I know you're there because blessed day. And here we are again, able to come to praise and worship the Lord. It's been great to have Pastor Brad with us this weekend. And he comes again tonight with a message. But first, he's going to come now and read the scripture and lead us in prayer, if you would, please. Uh, I'd like to come back to Luke chapter uh, 2 uh, once again this evening. And uh, I'm going to read from verse 8, which is the beginning of the paragraph that deals with the shepherds in their field, and uh, read down to the end of verse 35, which is the conclusion of the incident in the temple with, uh, with Simeon. So Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. May the Lord... Bless this reading of his word to our hearts and use it for our edification and encouragement. Let's come before the Lord and pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel, the power of your word. We thank you, Lord God, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us, that our faith might be strengthened as we hear it. And we pray, Lord God, that as we listen to your word, as we read your word and study it together, that we would be well equipped 
to share the good news with others as well. For we know that there is no other Savior than Jesus. This is God at work. This is your plan of salvation. And so, Lord, our God, we pray for much strength and health and courage and boldness, all that we need, so that we might take this word and share it with others. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunities presented at this time of year. Thank you for the calendar distribution. We pray that that would be richly used of the Lord. And we would pray also, Lord God, for the program next Sunday morning. We ask, Lord, that there may be visitors, that that some might come in to, to hear and perhaps be exposed to the gospel for the first time. We ask, Lord God, that you would use it mightily, both to encourage your people and build up your church and to reach out to those around us. Lord, our God, we pray that you would continue to give strength to those who are laboring in other places. We ask, Lord God, for open doors of opportunity. We pray, Lord God, especially for the resistance that will always be faced by the gospel. But you, O Lord, are able to open and prepare hearts. You have done this for Lydia, for example. You reached even one like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer and injurious and a blasphemer. You save sinners, Lord God. You delight in showing mercy. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would be doing that and that we would see your arm bared in salvation. For you, O Lord, are well able to do this. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to strengthen those who are passing through difficult days of trial. We pray that their eyes would be fixed on the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that the things that they face would not cause them to lose heart, that they would not faint, but rather would trust in you and not be afraid. Holy Father, we pray that with the uncertainties of our world and a new year dawning and having no idea what it will contain for us, may we rely upon you. May we know that you work all things together for good. And may we understand that you are the God who keeps his promises. When our trust is in you, Lord God, you will never let us go. And so we thank you, Lord God, that you shepherd your flock. And we come before you tonight asking exactly for that. You spoke of the Holy Spirit, whose role it would be to take the things of Christ and make them known. We need to know more about Christ. And we ask, Lord God, that all of these things would be used to comfort and encourage our heart. And we pray, Lord God, that in spite of everything that's going on, in the midst of everything that's going on, you would have a people who are obedient to your word, when you exhort us to rejoice in the Lord always. Help us, Father, to give praise and thanks, to go on our way glorifying God for what we have seen and heard. So we thank you, Lord, and ask your presence with us tonight. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. All right, let's come before the Lord again and pray together as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord God, for what that birth was for. We thank you, Holy Father, that this great plan of redemption before the foundation of the world was worked out perfectly and completely. Thank you, Lord God, that because of that, we can be encouraged. We can praise the Lord, glorifying his name, rejoicing in God, our Savior. Please, Lord, give us such hearts in the midst of our sometimes complaining, sometimes bitterness, often confusion in our world and our fears for the future. Help us to be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And may this bring glory to your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the things I like about the dawning of the Christmas season, is there's so many great scriptural quotes that you hear at that time of year particularly. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
my soul doth magnify the Lord. And I'm not sure if I would have automatically have included this one, but a couple of weeks ago when I was driving up to uh, record for Focus, I was listening to my CDs of Handel's Messiah in the car, and so glory to God in the highest. Uh, Great quotes like that, but one that is particularly dear to my heart is this one of the angel to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I uh, neglected when I was sending my information for the services to, uh, to Rael to include the title for my evening service, and I suspect uh, he never would have guessed it would be well-grounded gladness. That's not the kind of title you expect me uh, to uh, to give to a, a message. Uh, but I, I think this is an important thing to, to think about. You, you think of this quote of good tidings of great joy, and yet when we live in a day like we do, when we're surrounded by such misery and uncertainty and suffering, is great joy rather rude? Do we use muted tones because of the difficulties that many are facing. After all, I mean, we're sadly lacking in good news just now. And then more personally, if I have suffered loss, I probably don't feel much like expressing any joy, let alone that which is great. Why is great joy such an important part of this message. And of course, it's not just a problem at Christmas, because I've already alluded to the text in Philippians 4, verse 4 a couple of times, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, because he suspected they doubted him, uh, rejoice, writing from prison. Uh, obviously, this is great joy. This is to be something that, that marks the people of God. And there's a reason for that, because there is great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to reflect that. Now, rejoicing without a valid reason may not be sensible, but that's exactly the point. There are valid reasons. And failing to see that is because of our own perspectives. Uh, we are often too short-sighted. We're too earthly-minded. Uh, we perhaps don't have the grasp on the truth that we should have. We need to see that biblical joy is a well-grounded gladness. This is uh, something that makes sense when we understand the gospel. So our, uh, our, our theme tonight is really quite, quite simple and perhaps a little bit basic, but I hope useful. First of all, we'll consider the grounds and then we'll consider a little bit uh, the expression of, uh, of that gladness that we see in scripture. So as we think about the grounds, I want to bring you back again uh, to the, uh, the accounts of the birth of Jesus, of course, Matthew and Luke particularly, uh, but we'll uh, mention John and Mark uh, along the way as well. And I want to give you three reasons from the birth narratives of Jesus, the accounts of his birth, three reasons why these are good grounds for great joy, that there is a reason to rejoice in the Lord. And the first one is that the, the birth narratives of Jesus, these accounts of the birth of Jesus, give us a realistic assessment of our need. Now again, that seems like a, an odd place to start, uh, I guess, but we need to set that context to understand that this is a well-grounded joy. You see, you and I look at our situation in our day and the, the news of this past year and little uh, evidence in, in sight of the news next year being any better, and we're uncomfortable perhaps with rejoicing. But when you look back at these birth narratives, when you look back at the, the world in which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was born, there wasn't a, a, a great call for great joy even then. There wasn't a lot of good news. Think, for example, of the social disruption that was going on. Herod had more or less seized the, the control of the, the, the Jewish rule, as it were, under Roman uh, government, of course. But he turned that rule for personal power and prestige, much to the harm of the people. He was not ruling for their sakes. Uh, he was ruling for himself. And of course, we know uh, from Matthew's gospel how cruel that rule 
uh, could be. You have Caesar Augustus in Rome passing decrees that, that underlined Rome's domination, that reminded the people every day that they were under Roman control. They, they would walk down the street to the grocery store and walk past uh, Roman soldiers uh, guarding, guarding everything. And, and of course, Caesar would pass a decree and pay no heed to the difficulties caused to the likes of Mary and Joseph having to travel uh, from, from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem just to register uh, because Caesar wanted them to. Uh, this is, is the kind of world in which they lived. And of course, in addition to the social disruption, there was a horrifying sinfulness of the time. Herod's megalomania turning into a murderous rage. Roman domination leading to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus as horrifying cruelty was justified in the name of keeping the peace. This, this Roman peace uh, that, uh, that they loved so much. And then you might think, well, of course, you do have uh, the, the word of God in all of this. But, but the picture that's painted in the Gospels is that there's no counterweight provided by the, the religious leaders of the day. A spiritual malaise, by and large, gripped the people. Now, w- Gladly, we, we read of Simeon and, and Anna and, and shepherds coming and wise men coming. There were those who recognized the, the working of God and were looking for his redemption. But that's not, generally speaking, how the Gospels portray that age. The Lord Jesus himself quotes Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It was a difficult time. And so if we have any notion, and I'm sure you don't, but if we have any notion that the days uh, of uh, of the Bible were so much more encouraging and, and so on, uh, well, that should be disabused. It wasn't the case. It was a challenge to live in that day, uh, and they had fewer grounds for gladness than we do. Now, I said that this is one of the grounds for gladness, a realistic assessment of our needs. So let me explain myself, uh, because nothing I've said so far has been all that particularly glad. But unless your gladness accounts for the way things really are, it's not well-grounded. The gospel knows what we are. Remember Psalm 103? He remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. He plans and prepares this gospel precisely for a world like this. I I know that my temptation, I don't know whether any of you share it or not, but my temptation is to have a Merry Christmas by disconnecting the phone uh, and any connection to the outside world. Uh, That, in my mind, creates a Merry Christmas. Nobody can contact me or talk to me, and and so that's uh, that's good. Well, maybe I just revealed more of myself than you needed to know. Uh, but, But that's not how it happens here. In the Gospels, it fully accounts for the way things are. This is a gospel. As you read these birth accounts of Jesus, you begin to realize that rejoicing with great joy fits in a broken world. It's designed for it because it's redemption. It is God coming to sinners to make it right. There's no need to withdraw. There's no need to hide under our beds in order to have great joy. We can face this world knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful to save. And and so that's why I included this. There is no true gladness without a realistic assessment of the situation. But this good news faces all of the same things we face, and it stands up to it. It answers it, in fact, because at the root of this, it is the intervention of God. Which leads us to our second grounds for uh, gladness, and that is the revealed attributes of God. Now, in John's Gospel, you don't have the details of Jesus' birth that you have in Matthew and Luke, but you do have John 1.14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, in a sense, you could take John 1.14 and say that he's really summarizing what Matthew and Luke were getting at. Matthew and Luke illustrate John 1.14, uh, perhaps we, we could say. It's showing us God's glory full of grace and truth. And of course, this is a, a, an echo of, uh, of Exodus 34, uh, the issue of the, uh, the golden calf, as you may recall, uh, and, and how Moses cries out to God to show him his glory. And these are the words that he uses. The Lord, the Lord, uh, and, and he describes God. He goes through a number of his attributes, but included in that, it is full of, of grace and truth, of, of faithfulness, of mercy. This is the nature of this God. And that's what's being put on display here. Matthew likes to write that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, and then gives us an example of an Old Testament text that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke's way of putting it is to say, as it was said in the prophets or, or, or spoken by the prophets uh, to our fathers. This is what scripture was leading up to. This was what it was longing for, the grace and truth of God being made known. In one of your perhaps many readings of these Christmas chapters uh, over the next week or two, uh, look for the attributes of God. And since we covered Luke 1 and 2 a little bit this morning, think about that. God's grace. John says, full of grace. One of the key words we looked at this morning was the word mercy. The tender mercies of our God. When you look at this, this, this birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is born a Savior. Mercy. Is, is coming to us. Why? Because God delights in mercy. It's because of the attributes of God. This is what our God is like. He is full of truth, underlining his, his faithfulness. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John writes. Jesus himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Psalm 138, in a, an interesting expression, says, God's word is magnified above all his name. Everything you can say about God, it comes to the climax in the word of God that, that stands over it all as, as unshakable, eternal, always uh, uh, abiding. And so the attributes of God are being revealed. And of course, you can add more to that. In some of our readings this morning, uh, they underline the power of God. How can these things be? With God, nothing shall be impossible. Uh, the, the, the message that, that Mary is, is given is that this is the case. And, and when Mary sings her song, uh, what does she say about God? He's regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me Great things, holy is his name. His mercy is on them that fear him. He has showed strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. What a declaration of who God is. Her focus is on the Lord. He can do this. He is mighty. He does great things. Holy is his name. She learned all of this from the Old Testament scriptures. This is what God is like. This is how God is described. But at the birth of Jesus, there it is, spelled out in, in action, actually seeing these things coming to pass. And of course, his holiness, uh, again, in what I just read, and then Zacchaeus, the song we read from Zacchaeus, uh, it's, uh, it's tied in with our, our righteousness, uh, verse uh, 74 and 75 of Luke 1, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. What is God's purpose here? It's to display his glory. You look at the, the birth narratives, John says, and we behold his glory full of grace and truth. It's overflowing in here. Read these accounts, not just to refresh your minds about the events of that first Christmas, but to see the God of that first Christmas. Grace, truth, power, 
holiness. This is all being spelled out uh, for us. So maybe there's a Herod and his murderous rage. Maybe there's this far-off Caesar Augustus making these ridiculous decrees that you have no option but to obey. But far above Herod, far above the Caesar, God is in his heaven. And we see his glory. The birth of this child, I mean, they hadn't even heard about it in Jerusalem, in the palace five miles away from Bethlehem. But heaven was declaring the glory of God. That's what's going on here. We have grounds for gladness because we must have the intervention of God, and that's what we have. This true and living God is making himself known. What does he actually do? Well, the third grounds for our gladness is to consider the redeeming activity of God. And again, we've touched on these things uh, this morning as we looked at these passages. But let me underline it again. We always need to make the link between the beginning of the gospel and the end of it. We always need to see that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was deeply rooted in the cross and resurrection, and, and, and that our, our theology, our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the scriptures needs to make this, this connection. It is where our faith finds its grounds. Of course, the cross and resurrection are the, the focus. Uh, if you take the four gospels and uh, add up the chapters... Statistics are worth what they're worth. But if you add up the chapters that go from, say, the, uh, the triumphal entry, the beginning of the last week, and, and, and to the end of the gospel, and if I did my math correctly, you come up with almost a third of the gospels center on the last week. Uh, almost a third of the chapters are about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the, the trials and, uh, and the, the appearances before the people and what's said in the garden and, and so on. The Gospel of Mark doesn't carry any uh, account of the birth of Jesus. It begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And, and it describes that ministry by weaving together two Old Testament quotes from Malachi 3, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And then Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark wants us to understand that in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is coming. God is making his appearance. Uh, and so Mark is probably assuming you know about what uh, Matthew 1 and 2 contain and Luke 1 and 2, that you know those details and that you see the uniqueness of this one who was born. And again, the coming of the Lord uh, is not necessarily good news, not automatically so. In fact, if you look at Malachi uh, chapter 3, and again, thank Handel's Messiah for this, uh, he, he goes on to say, he shall suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you uh, delight in. But then the question, but who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? This is terrifying. The Lord of glory, whom we've despised, whom we've ignored, uh, whom we've refused to listen to, whose word we've, we've trampled as, as meaningless and, uh, and able to be discarded. He's coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord has come. Suddenly, he comes to his temple. And who can stand before him? The last line of the Old Testament is he will strike the earth with a curse. That's how the Old Testament draws to a close. Is that what is happening here? Here's the astounding mercy of God. 
Here's the ground of gladness. That even though the curse is found all through the earth, the, the vile brutality of Herod and Rome and those who followed them, the shallow, perverse treatment of holy things, all of these things can lead to despair. But as the hymn writer so neatly put it, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's not just that we have all of this bad news, but the good news is good enough that we forget the bad news. It's the good news is that God himself comes precisely to redeem us from the bad news. It's a direct response of God to a sin-ravaged world until he remakes it as the home of righteousness. This is the goal of redemption. This is what God is doing. And this is why Jesus has come. He comes to redeem his people. So what reasons do we have left for not rejoicing? It is a well-grounded joy that's grounded in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this work out in practice? How is this gladness confessed? Well, I've chosen a few things uh, to underline this. And again, we touched on this somewhat this morning, but uh, to recap a little bit, uh, there is this glorifying and praising God. One of the features of Luke's account, particularly, is the music of Christmas. It's good tidings of great joy, and so everybody who hears about the birth of the Lord Jesus is singing in Luke's gospel. He doesn't deal with Herod, of course, but, but the people he comes across, they're singing, they're rejoicing because of this birth. Mary, all confused with this visit of the angel, uh, you know, not to be afraid, they they keep telling people not to be afraid because this is terrifying. Uh, and, and so they're not to be afraid. But this is what God is doing. And what does Mary do? She bursts out into praise. My soul rejoices in God my Savior who pulls down the proud and the arrogant but lifts up the lowly, starting with her. Here is God at work. By grace from first to last, how things seem is not the final word. Because God is just, and he will be seen to be just. And that begins here with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working out his plan, he's working out his justice, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. We thought about Zacharias a little bit, or at least his song this morning. He too rejoices. It didn't start that way for him either. He too is terrified by this. And then filled with unbelief when uh, he and his elderly wife are going to have, have a son and, and, and all the confusion. But then it happens. And he bursts out into song. He begins to sing. And again, he sings of the salvation of God, the tender mercy of our God. Salvation is a key word uh, for, uh, for Zacharias as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is clearly for us in the sending of his son. The angels, they have a message to deliver. That's what the word angel means, as messenger. And so the angel brings his message and, and announces the message. But what a message. Good tidings of great joy for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the kind of message that Demands a choir. <laughs> and suddenly there's a choir. <laughs> praising God. Glory to God in the highest. On earth peace and goodwill toward men. Glory to God. The shepherds examine the word. They find it as they were told. And they return glorifying and praising God. There are good grounds for gladness here amongst people who were feeling much oppression and discouragement 
and maybe even they had begun to trickle into despair that these things would ever be so. They hear of the birth of Jesus, and they are overflowing with joy. This is good news of great joy precisely because we live in the kind of world we do. Who else but God could deal with this? And that's what we have here. Simeon sees this eight-day-old baby boy come into the temple. How often would this happen in a given week? I mean, it's a big city, not like modern cities perhaps, but there's a lot of people there. Surely, these babies being brought in was not an uncommon sight at the temple. This baby was an uncommon sight. My eyes have seen your salvation. I see it. This is God at work. This is God accomplishing his plan. This is good tidings of great joy. Nothing less than that. How does the rest of the New Testament think about this? Well, again, three examples. The first one we did touch on this morning, but I thought it was necessary to tie this together and to be complete. The end of Luke's Gospel. Jesus opens their understanding. You remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus earlier in the chapter? We thought he would be the one to redeem Israel. And so Jesus says, Oh fools, <laughs> and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. That's so important for Luke. This is grounded in the word of God. If only we could grasp that. This is God at work. The Lord Jesus explains it. He appears to the, uh, the, the disciples and, and he says, Peace to you. Look at my hands and feet. It's me. Handle me and see. A spirit is not flesh and bones as you see me have. Then he explains, These are the words I spoke to you when I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Remember I mentioned this morning how Luke 24 is wrapping up Luke 1 and 2. It's borrowing these themes. This is what the prophets have spoken. Then he opens their understanding that he might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, thus it behooved or was fitting for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He led them out to Beth Bethany, lifted up his hands, he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. What else could they do? in light of what they now know, in light of what they have seen and heard, what can they do except go on their way rejoicing and glorifying God? It's the culmination of all of this. And again, Luke has underlined that this is great joy for all. The gospel, I know it is despised, but it shouldn't be. It's a message that is powerful and always relevant. It's complete. And then, if we move into, well, volume two of Luke, the book of Acts, what do we find there <clears throat> as the gospel begins to spread? Now, if I ask you, is there suffering in the book of Acts? How long would it take you to come up with an example? I, I mean, not very long, right? Uh, it, it's full of, uh, of examples. The Apostle Paul heads out on his first missionary journey, and before he's back, he's got bruises from the rocks all over his body. Uh, he's left for dead outside the, the, the city. Uh, it, it's, it, it's filled with all of these challenges. 
And yet, as you read through the book of Acts, you find all of these testimonies of joy. You see the description of the church on the day of Pentecost. How would you sum up this new body of believers, brand new community? Well, you could sum it up this way. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Gladness, praising God, was the mark of the church. And again, they're this minority group, these these these. 3,000 people gathered together in a, in a big city, full of joy, praising God. That's what marked them. That's what Luke wants us to notice. There's the lame man who is healed. And of course, we read of him walking and leaping and praising God. Hard to say that without singing it too. But you see him walking and leaping and praising God. And of course he is. I mean, he could walk again. We understand that. But as Peter explains what happened in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, in the verse that Raoul quoted earlier, that there's no other name than the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what Peter goes on to explain. Repent, be converted, your sins will be blotted out. The times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. You feel in any need of a time of refreshing by any chance? It comes from the Lord. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's because of the gospel. If you do this, he shall send Jesus Christ who is preached unto you, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, which, and here's where you know Luke is a hand in this, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. These are good tidings of great joy that we're reading about. Our bodies may not be healed as his was, but we have the same reasons to praise God. That's what Peter is trying to get at here. And it carries on. Perhaps one of the most stunning examples is chapter 5 and verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. If you can get a community of people who will rejoice in suffering for him, then rejoicing is a pretty deeply inbred habit, isn't it? We will be rejoicing in the Lord always if we could master that. And Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? Remember Romans 5? We rejoice in this grace in which we stand. Not only so, we rejoice in tribulation also because of what tribulation brings about in our life. And hope never makes us ashamed. We rejoice in these things. The Ethiopian. Remember, Philip visits him by the hand of the Lord out in the middle of the wilderness. Philip suddenly shows up and preaches Jesus from Isaiah 53. He asks about baptism. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, here's water. Uh, he is, is baptized in the water. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. There it is again. Philip's not necessary, but the joy stays. He goes on his way rejoicing. And, well, there's, there's more. I've given you a, a list there. Uh, chapter 13, uh, verse, uh, verse 52. Uh, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. No secret that that goes together. They hear, the churches hear of Paul and Barnabas and, and what had happened on their first missionary journey. And as they give these reports in chapter 15, verse 3, they caused great joy unto all the brethren. In chapter 16 and, and verse 34, the Philippian jailer uh, turns to the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the events of that night. And he brought them into his house, Paul and Silas, and he set meat before them and rejoiced 
believing in God with all his house. He's trying to tell us something. This is good news of great joy. This is God's refreshment. This is God's salvation. The Apostle Paul to the Athenians in Acts chapter 20 talks about the fact that he knows he's going to Jerusalem and will get in trouble. He knows that this is what's waiting for him. And his earnest desire is to finish his course with joy. To the end, be rejoicing in the Lord. What an astounding gospel. You see, a season like Christmas can be a season of joy. There are good things that happen this time of year. Newspapers that delight in portraying before us the inhumanity of the human race suddenly collect gifts for needy children. Businesses that are consumed with profit do the same kinds of things. There are reasons to rejoice for a season. And you could think of the church on the day of Pentecost. Of course, they're rejoicing. I mean, 3,000 people were just converted. That's bound to put a smile on your face, granted. But what Acts is trying to get at is it wasn't just a feast day. It wasn't just a one-time thing. The church was marked by joy. Because the gospel is good tidings of great joy. If we believe the good news, at least something of the great joy should well up in our hearts. Which leads to the last example. And if I say I'm going to talk about joy, then Philippians, of course, comes to mind. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And with that, Paul introduces his testimony. How there was a time he was relying on his heritage and on his achievements and, and, and on his law-keeping. And then he trundled that all off to the dump. And he began to rejoice in Jesus Christ alone. I count all that as refuse for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he finishes his course with joy. Chapter 4, verse 4, which I quoted earlier, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Do you see why this is important? Rejoicing in the Lord is one of the ways my conviction of the truth of the gospel shows itself. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering means that I am fully convinced because of the Lord Jesus Christ that I am kept by the Good Shepherd and no one plucks me out of his hand. There is nothing in my trials, even in death itself, that will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. These are good tidings of great joy. We show the worth of our Savior when we rejoice in the Lord. We show that there's an answer for my failures and my despair in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read at the end of Philippians how he's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. We look for this. We look for this Savior from heaven. We anticipate the glory that is to come. It's a joy that never ends because Christ ever lives. And so when you think of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Please don't think of it as a passing season. Think of it as the astonishing act of the gracious, merciful, holy, powerful God to redeem helpless sinners and to bring them safely home. It is the creator 
restoring what he has made. A new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. It is to refresh. It is to make alive those who are dead. This is good news of great joy, staggering truths. And so our gladness is well-grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in the Lord always. And as soon as we say those words, Lord God, we are convicted. How readily we give in to bitterness and to our fears. How readily we fall into discouragement because plans aren't working out as we thought they would. Please help us to see the proper grounds of great joy and help us to see them as we are told about the birth of Jesus at the beginning of these gospel records. Help us not just to be moved by the sign of this poor couple putting their newborn son in a cattle stall, but help us to see the condescension that was behind it, that he humbled himself to the death of the cross to save sinners like us. And help us to see the glory of God, as, as so many of these characters did, to see glory in all of this. And help us to see that God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Lord, our God, may we trust in the Lord with all our heart. And may we be characterized as a people of gladness. Yes, there will be tears, there will be the trials, but underneath it all is great gladness because Jesus is born. Christ, the Savior, has come. Unto us was born a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.